Hello, and welcome to Book Club of One. I am Jacob, a librarian, and through the course of a year I read a lot of books. Join me as I detail and share my impressions of the books that have entertained or educated me the most. Welcome to the end of summer. This two-week period finds me winding down somewhat with uh, summer activities and beginning to plan for a fall academic year. Part of that means trying to make sure everything I've been doing for summer reading challenges through the public libraries I've taken part in the summer are recorded so that I can maybe enter to win the raffle prizes. Thinking ahead to the, both the fall and next year, if, if there's enough interest, we could consider doing some sort of reading challenge directly through the show. Reach out if you're interested. And also, while you might be planning to reach out, if you've discovered and enjoyed a book directly thanks to this podcast, please let me know through either the Gmail, Book Club of Uno, or through social media. This week's books are all, or at least four of them, seem to be about family and belonging, which was not planned, but as I was writing up the show notes, it's what seemed to have happened. So, enjoy those. So our first book of the episode takes us into less directly Black Lives Matters, but still race-related readings. So this week, I'll be talking about War Against the Weak, Eugenics, and America's Campaign to Create a Master Race by Edwin Black. So uh, this was featured two episodes ago, and I finally finished it. Uh, Edwin Black is an American syndicate columnist and journalist. He specializes in human rights, the historical interplay between economics and politics in the Middle East, petroleum policy, the abuses practiced by corporations, and the financial underpinnings of Nazi Germany. That's from Goodreads. I picked this book up at a used bookstore during a history book sale. I got this and several World War I books and finally gotten around to reading it. It's, it's focused on the creation and uh, distribution or spread of eugenic ideas from Charles Davenport to Hitler's embrace of them in Nazi Germany. Uh, in a postscript of that, it then discusses how the eugenics became genetics and how those ideas still permeate society to some degree. So in looking at this book, I thought I'd start by just offering the definition of eugenics for those not familiar with the term, and that is the study of how to arrange reproduction within a human population to increase the occurrence of heritable uh, characteristics regarded as desirable which those were typically decided by the educated white elite at the time point we're looking at. As a historical work, it runs kind of the, the general challenges you, you come across to those and that it is long and in places can be somewhat die, die, dry, repetitive. But overall, uh, it falls back to what is often the strength of historical works and that it questions assumptions of what was understood at the time period and shows that events are not always as they might be portrayed or remembered. So in looking at the eugenic ideals, obviously Nazi Germany is often the 
the nadir or the best known example of this, but it, throughout the work, it was disheartening and disturbing to see the extent of the embrace of this ideal in the United States to the point where those who were found to be mentally uh, less than the standards or even like alcoholic or some other conditions that are more societal based than genetics. The argument was that they were genetically based and if you sterilize those suffering, it would eventually prevent the issue by those who were more susceptible to this and their families would of course no longer be able to breed. And as they looked at those they found undesirable, unsurprisingly, they targeted the, the typical minority populations that are more likely to struggle, such as the African-Americans, the Asian immigrants, as well as minorities that, again, have typically been viewed as lesser or their immigration has been contested. Uh, it, would also, it also highlighted the role of the eugenicists in shaping governmental policy. So again, they, they passed laws allowing for sterilization or in, in some cases, full euthanasia, uh, and also how they shaped our isolationism in the 1920s and 30s to the point where Nazi Germany actually used some of the governmental transcript of some of the congressional hearings or subcommittees of some people declaring how a Jew was defined and highlights that particular part. So again, uh, a, a long but very important thing to discuss. Now, I mean, uh, a, a, pro a potential problem is this book was published in 2003. So obviously we're, we're almost two decades removed from that. So I'd be curious to see how this has continued. We, we see some of the ideas still discussed, not directly linked to euthanasia, uh, eugenics, but now the conversation has shifted to it being genetics. And in that co the, the end of this work, it talks about the potential issues with genetics, where if you have a family member or a family history of being pre more predisposed to a disease, well, the insurance companies will want to know that ahead of time. And if they do know that information, can they use it as a pre-existing condition? And so that at that point, it's talking about how it's kind of a, the frontier of the law. So again, taking some time to further research and see if it's changed could be fascinating. Our second book is Sai Gone, a Misfits Memoir of Great Books, Punk Rock, and the Fight to Fit In by Phuc Tran. Phuc Tran is an author, educator, classicist and tattooer, as he describes himself on his own webpage. So I'd first seen about this book through a review in the Book Pages magazine, and then in July, towards the end of July, Midtown Scholar had a virtual author talk with him, which that is shared in the show notes if you're curious. Uh, he has also given a, a well-regarded TED talk, which is what led him to writing this memoir. Uh, and it details uh, Tran's coming of age from when he and his family in emigrated to the United States from Saigon, Vietnam in 1975 uh, to where it ends discussing his Carlisle, Pennsylvania high school graduation in 1991. 
And throughout the book, the framing devices he uses for sharing his life is uh, classic works of literature, nonfiction. So each chapter picks a book and in some way talks about how his life fit the theme of that book or fit something notable from that book. So in looking or thinking about this book, uh, Phuc Tran is like one of the most honest writers I've read in probably quite some time. Uh, everything is detailed. So he, he discusses the physical abuse from his parents and other family members, uh, like the punishments meted out by relatives when he went against what was considered acceptable through through their culture. Uh, his, his sexual coming of age, again, he gives full detail of those, his general experimentation of exposure to alcohol and the wider world. So, you know, taking up skateboarding uh, and in general, the balancing act of shifting cultures. So in his home life, he, he spoke Vietnamese primarily, but then of course, when he went out into wider society, he needed to speak English. So and as time progresses, he talks about how having that dual identity would affect his language skills over time, particularly as he spent more and more time in the education system. Uh, so in looking at this work, it does not shy away from trauma and disturbing content. Pretty much what happened in his life is detailed here. But he balances all that with, with some levity, such as uh, when he talks about early in the transition to America, uh, in the early, late, the mid to late 70s, the Star Wars phenomenon, and how he was very enamored with Luke Skywalker and the rest of that story. So he and his father one day are reading together, and he doesn't know what a Wookiee is. So he asks his father to look it up in the dictionary, and of course, as it was fairly recent at the point, it's not in the dictionary. So they're, they're left stumped trying to figure out a Wookiee is and left without an answer. So it, the book speaks to the commonalities of growing up and wanting to have friends and a sense of belonging in a community, but it also, again, drives back to the trying to fit into cultures. I'm hopeful uh, Phuc Tran will, will write a, a second memoir or volume, because uh, as, as it ends, again, it, right at his high school graduation, he's about to go to Bard College, uh, and from looking looking at his bio and the uh, author talk he had done, it, it sounds like his, his fascinating life continued from there, because currently he lives in Maine with his wife and children and runs a tattoo parlor, but he also has taught Latin in the past, and uh, I believe his, his degree was in the classics at Bard. So again, there seems to be like a, 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 a continued story there about making his own life. Our third book is Nothing to See Here by Kevin Wilson. So Kevin Wilson is an American author who has written several books. Uh, I had seen this initially when it was a new release last year, uh, but it was recommended in Phuc Tran's Midtown author talk, so my library had it, I borrowed. It is focused on Lillian Madison, who are unlikely roommates and yet inseparable friends at their elite boarding school before Lillian was forced to leave. 
they've maintained contact by letter. And in the most recent letter, Madison is seeking a caregiver for her twin, twin stepkids who are moving in. And she wants Lillian to be that person. However, there's a catch. The twins spontaneously combust when they get agitated, with flames igniting from their skin. So, kind of a ridiculous premise, but at its heart, a story about family, belonging, and parental love. So we see uh, different, quite different things between Lillian and Madison, where Madison is the child of privilege with a father with great financial capabilities who saw to it that Madison received the education that would help her continue to live at that level or higher. Whereas Lillian, when she enters the boarding school, this is her big chance. So she comes from less privileged circumstances and winds up due to a major, uh, a minor plot point in the book, not being able to see those through. And so at the beginning of the book, she's kind of in a dis depressed state, still living at home with her parent uh, and working multiple low paying jobs, just kind of floating through life. But then eventually she is hired by Madison, lives in this world of privilege uh, and works to connect with these children and work to control their reactions. So there's, there's some kind of farcical sets pieces of her trying to get them not to burst into flames and the level of prevention they go through or the avenues they pursue to, to control the issue. Book four is Castle Waiting, the Omnibus of Vision, uh, Volume One by Linda Medley. So Linda Medley is an American comic book author and illustrator. I came across this book uh, as it was listed in 101 Outstanding Graphic Novels by Stephen Weiner. And it is uh, uh, kind of begins from the premise of what happened to the castle after Sleeping Beauty awoke and left with the prince. That's the starting point of Castle Waiting, a castle that becomes a shelter for misfits and outcasts. The volume explores their backgrounds and how they came to the castle. It's a fairy tale that is focused on the everyman finding a home instead of the traditional focus of royalty or the struggle between good and evil. So it is a graphical, graphic novel work. It is in black and white. Uh, it's a series of collected stories, but they feel honest and are told with grace. Uh, the cast includes a talking anthropomorphic horse who's a, a knight, a mysteriously pregnant woman on the run uh, of, of social standing, and a bearded nun are just a, a portion of the cast here. So at different points, we explore some of their backstories through flashbacks shared and told over for meals. There's, there's some bits of magic. There are ghosts. Uh, like other works featured this week, it, seems to center on the theme of family and belonging, so finding a place that you fit in. Lots of good stories, a good bit of humor. And our final book is Angleby by Sebastian Falks. 
So this falls into our biggest disappointment of the two-week period. Sebastian Falks is a British novelist, journalist, and broadcaster best known for his book Birdsong, and in general his, his trilogy that that is a part of, which are historical novels about France before and during World War I. So I read this because I was familiar with uh, Birdsong and had been interested in it. I think I read a, another of his works earlier this year. So for Angleby, uh, Angleby is the narrator of the book, and he comes from a working class family, uh, and he works his way up and manages to go to a prestigious university. Uh, and while there, one of his female classic classmates disappears and while Engleby is one of the suspects, the case goes cold, and the story continues for decades before something happens to make all that change. So throughout this work, Engleby portrays himself, uh, again, because he is the one narrating a lot of the work, as a loner, best left to his own devices, intelligent, but thinking he is the best at many things and excusing things that happen that go against his way as being ill luck or a lesson that he learns from and never repeats. So he never really seems to move beyond that viewpoint or address any major changes to his life. A lot of the work is a mystery based on memory. So it, 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 as you read through, you do wind up asking yourself, how reliable is Ingleby? And that is partially the point. But much is hinted as it evolves directly from his memories and viewpoints. So he might tangentially make a passing reference at something. Uh, like other books listed this week, it does detail somewhat physical abuse. Uh, at only 320 pages, it still felt longer than it is. By the time they reach the big reveal, it doesn't really feel like that much of a revelation, just a matter of the inevitable. So true crime fans might be interested, but I can't really think of many other people that I'd recommend this to. And finally, the reading next or coming soon. First is a graphic work by Joe Sackle called Pain Land. Uh, Joe Sackle is very well known for his graphic journalism works. Uh, and in this particular volume, the Dean have lived in the vast Mackenzie River Valley since time immemorial, by their account. To the Dean, the land owns them, and it is central to their livelihood and very way of being. But the subarctic Canadian Northwest territories are home to valuable resources, including oil, gas, and diamonds. With mining came jobs and investment, but also road building, pipelines, and toxic waste, which scarred the landscape and alcohol, drugs, and debt, which deformed a way of life. So I'm looking forward to that, reading that one. And then the other is The Color of Law, a forgotten history of, our of how our government segregated America by Richard Rothstein. And this explodes the myth that America's cities came to be racially divided through de facto segregation, that is, through individual prejudices, income differences, or the actions of private institutions, like banks and real estate agencies. Rather, the color of law incontrovertibly makes clear that it was de jure segregation, the law and policy decisions passed by local, state, and federal governments that actually promoted the discriminatory patterns that continue to this day. So those are what's coming up. Um, we've had our five books this episode. So as always, thanks for listening. 
And one quick note before we go to our outro is uh, I'm going to drop the bookshop links from the show notes. So if you are interested in supporting the show and your independent bookstores, uh, feel free to message us and I can send you a, a link that if you decide to purchase the book through it would benefit both the show and independent bookstores. If you like the description of any of the books shared here, visit the show notes for links for WorldCat, uh, showing libraries you may be able to borrow it through, or links to purchase through IndieBound or bookshop.org. In addition, if you've never used ThriftBooks before, meaning you have no account, uh, there's a provided link to get 15% off your first order, and I will get 50 points towards a free book. Some exclusions do apply to that 15%. You can find Book Club of One on Instagram and Gmail as Book Club of Uno, uh, or you can find us on Goodreads and through podcasts like the one you're listening to as Book Club of One. This podcast is made and distributed through Anchor.fm. Check back in two weeks, and remember, no one should be shamed for reading. <laughs>